The following is a message by Professor Josh Van E. of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Our, uh, <clears throat> our text is Second uh, Kings chapter 3. We'll see if I have any time to say anything on it after we read the whole thing. But uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 3. Here is the the reading of God's word. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram uh, marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands, into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the kings, one of, of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. But this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and he will give, you the, give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city, or strike every fortified city, and every choice, um, and every choice city. 
and shall fell every good tree and stop up springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled uh, before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only the stones were left in Kir Haresheth. And the slingers surrounded it and struck it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Moab, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Our passage before us this morning is, uh, is interesting, lively, complex, and even confusing. Uh, it's hard to make sense of everything. Uh, I had the benefit of studying this with uh, some members of the historical books class last spring, and, uh, and so I gained much from their insights and their interpretations. And, uh, and so we'll look at it this morning. Uh, but we won't answer all the questions that, uh, that would be posed, the issues raised by this text. Um, but I think we can see how this text portrays our powerful God. Our God who is powerful to judge and powerful to save. As we begin we need to remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Kings. It's uh, very essential for our passage. Uh, We are in the time of the divided monarchy, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And in the north, there is this line of kings, the most famous of whom is Ahab. And, And Ahab, when he became king, introduced Baal, right? The worship of Baal into Israel with his wife Jezebel. And, uh, and he was confronted by Elijah um, for being unfaithful, for being this unfaithful vassal, we could say. Um, and God also decreed judgment on him and his house. Uh, and, uh, and so when we come to our text, we know who this Jehoram is this son of Ahab, this son of this house that is under judgment, that the curse of them being wiped out is uh, is upon them. Uh, But we also know Elijah's not around anymore. Uh, Just a chapter earlier, he was taken up into heaven. Um, Instead, we now have his successor, Elisha. 
Uh, and, uh, and so with this, this context, uh, this uh, son of this rebellious vassal, um, this son who was also a rebellious vassal of the Lord, there's a little bit of irony that the first thing he does in his, uh, in his time in the office, uh, is when he becomes king, is he goes against his rebellious vassal, uh, Mesha, the king of Moab. And uh, the, uh, our chapter here follows that compa- campaign as he go out, goes out and, uh, and battles with Moab. But as we read through it, we quickly see that it's not just about this battle between um, Jehoram and Mesha. Uh, instead, they uh, know, uh, you know, we're told that they gather for battle, and soon after that they're marching out, and there's a crisis. They're out there seven days, and they run out of water. They're in the desert of Edom, a dry place. And, uh, and so there is this crisis. But not only is there this crisis, how does Jehoram respond? Well, he lashes out, lashes out at the Lord and cries, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And by this cry, he begins what we see as a confrontation between the prophet and the king. But we again need to stop for a moment and, and back up um, and set the stage for this prophetic conflict, we could say. Because Jehoram does not go out alone against Edom. Instead, we read at the beginning that he asked Jehoshaphat to come and help. And uh, hopefully this sounds familiar. Where else have we seen a king of, of uh, Israel asking Jehoshaphat to come with him? Well, Ahab in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 22. And not only is it similar in that they're marching out together, we actually have uh, um, Jehoshaphat answering in, in identical uh, phrases. Um, in 1 Kings 22, after Ahab asks if he'll go up with him, uh, in verse 4 he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Uh, exactly as we find it here in our text. But that's not the only uh, similarity, the only thing that's the same. In 1 Kings 22, we had Ahab gather all of his false prophets to ask them, shall I go up and fight this battle? And all the false prophets said, go up, for the Lord will give them into your hand. Well, what happens right after that? Jehoshaphat, discerning that that is not truly the word of the Lord, asks, is there not here a prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Again, paralleling what is in our text in uh, in verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And so as we have that in our background we see that Jehoram's words actually take on new meaning. They are in the same place as the words of the false prophets in 1 Kings 22. Jehoram here is making his false prophetic word and thereby being in conflict with the true prophet of the Lord. 
He is claiming to know this situation. He is claiming to know the workings of God without having been brought up into his divine counsel. But Jehoshaphat here again correctly sees Jehoram's prophecy, his analysis of the situation as false, and calls for a true prophet. And we find Elisha. Elisha is with them, and Jehoshaphat identifies that the word of the Lord is with them. And so we're set up for this conflict. And so the kings go down, and they meet with Elisha, and sparks begin to fly. For Elisha rejects them, right? Turns them away. He confronts Jehoram with his rebel status. You've turned your back on God. Go to the prophets of your mother and your father in your time of need. Why are you turning here? But Jehoram shoots back, right? He says, no, this is, this is my analysis. This is my prophecy. The Lord's behind this, right? Yahweh's done this. It is his problem. You need to deal with it. Jehoram's cry here, we could see, is really you know, the opposite of the humble prayer of a faithful person in the time of trial. This crisis should have caused him to repent, to turn, to pray, to plead for mercy and help if he believes the Lord is behind it. But instead he lashes out accusing God, questioning his motives. But what will God do? Will he bring judgment on Jehoram? This judgment that Jehoram is prophesying of, that Moab will defeat them. Uh, and, and if he does that, well then Jehoram in a sense is proved right, uh, though in a limited sense. Um, or will he overturn his word? Right? Will he say, no, I, um, the opposite will happen. You'll defeat Moab. Uh, and, uh, and by doing that, Jehoram would again, in a sense, win, as he's able to defeat and be victorious over his rebel vassal, Mesha. So what is God going to do? There seems to be this war of words. And how will um, Yahweh respond? Well, I think it's important first to see that God was not trapped. He did not have to respond to Jehoram, his accusation. And uh, we see that in Elisha's response. He says, I wouldn't give you the time of day except for Jehoshaphat here. He would not even meet with him. He would not even respond to his accusations. Um, instead, it is because he has regard for Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, this king of Judah, this descendant of David, this descendant of David who, despite his failings that we do see in various parts of the text, is able to rightly discern the word of the Lord, the one who is in this line of promise. Um, in many ways, we could say Jehoram, is only saved from the situation because of Jehoshaphat, because of his promise, because of his presence. Um, but uh, so we have Elisha then take up this, this match, this war of words with Jehoram. 
And he does it through his prophet Elisha. And he will not be outdone. He will not be trapped uh, by these questions, by these accusations. And so first he foretells of the water that will come, dealing with that immediate situation. And we'll return briefly to that later. Um, But uh, he goes beyond that and overturns Jehoram's prophecy, or so it seems. In, uh, In verse 18, we read, the second part of verse 18, and, uh, and he will give the Moabites into your hand. This is in opposition to what Jehoram has said will happen, that the three kings will be delivered into the hands of Moab. But then he goes on to qualify it, or to explain, we could say, what that means in verse 19. And you shall attack, you shall strike every city. You shall fell every good tree. You shall stop every spring. You shall ruin every good piece of land. And we don't have to wait long to see this prophecy coming true. We read of the next morning the water coming, and with the water drawing out the Moabites and uh, and bringing them so Israel can easily rise up and strike them. But then more specifically in verse 25, we get the direct correlation with uh, verse 19. They overthrew the cities. They threw stones on the land. They stopped the springs. They felled the trees. But then we read of something left, that one more city remained. And not only that, as we continue on, that city stays. They don't defeat it, and Israel is defeated and returns home. What is this? Has Elisha's prophecy failed? Has it not come to pass? Well, this is where we need to pay particular close attention to the details. In verse 19, the order given is um, cities and then trees and then water, and then land. When we get to 25, we have that order reversed, at least in the sense that we have land, and then water, and then trees. And so with the reversal of those three elements, we expect cities to also be reversed, instead of being in the front, being at the end. And as we add that insight we see that what looks like an extraneous detail in verse 25, and the slingers surrounded this city, Kir Hareset, and struck it, now takes on new meaning. Because the word to strike there, what the slingers were doing to this city, is the same as what Elisha prophesied would happen. This is not what... Jehoram took the prophecy to be, striking the cities thereby defeating him. Instead, in the end, it's just striking this most important city, this capital city of Moab, just striking it with stones that bounced off. God would not bring this blessed victory upon his rebellious vassal. Instead, as this victory seems inevitable, as he's at the very point of taking the capital city, 
it is snatched from his hand. And I think that's the same point we get in these last two verses. This confusing situation where there's human sacrifice that seems to end up in wrath coming against Israel. I think it's better when we see verses 26 and 27 together. We see two actions of a king, a king who is in most dire straits, that he does anything he can to get out. And this is emphasized in the repetition of a verb beginning both of these clauses. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took 700 men, and he tried to rally out and go through the, what he would see as the weakest point of the line, this vassal king, Edom, but he's not able. And so he takes, again, the same verb, and he appeals to his God, his no-God, uh, by killing his heir, right, the son that would be um, on the throne after him, cutting off his own heir in desperation. So I think we need to see these two as in parallel, showing the utter desperation of Mesha. And then in response to that, what happens just when everything could be against Mesha, wrath comes against Israel, a great wrath. And this phrase, if we look at it elsewhere in Scripture, is always used of Yahweh, bringing his judgment Yahweh, who is very much the silent character throughout this narrative, here at the end brings this judgment on his rebellious vassal. Jehoram will not see this blessing. He has challenged the Lord to this duel of words, and the Lord will prevail. He is not trapped by Jehoram, but instead accomplishes his purpose. But I don't want to leave you with that idea, with that note. Because I think really at the heart of this text is the God who can provide life. The God who can provide salvation. And throughout the Elijah-Elisha narratives, we have this constant veil between who is God, Baal or Yahweh. And uh, we could find in here various allusions to the contest that Elijah has on Mount Carmel. Again, a water contest. There's drought in the land. Who will provide life? Who will break the drought? And God answers with fire. And then he brings the rain as the clouds rise out of the Mediterranean. But here we have something even greater. We have the God who provides life, water in the desert, even though there is no rain cloud, even though there are no showers. And so this is at the very heart of our text, Elisha's statement in verses 16 and through 18. Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but this stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. This is the God we serve. A God who will bring judgment on those who are in rebellion, right? but a God who also offers life. A God who became incarnate and offered living water, 
who cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your salvation, that you sustained your people, even amongst oppressive kings, kings ruling even in the land of Canaan. And so we uh, rejoice in the fullest uh, expression of your love, the fullest declaration of your salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's for him that we wait, and we pray for his return. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.